I don't know about you, I love a good story. I love to hear personal stories. And uh, everybody has a story to tell. Every one of you in this room has a story to tell. You've, you've, you've been on a life journey. And I especially enjoy listening to stories of people who came to understand who Jesus Christ was. They're conversion stories. You could be talking with a perfect stranger, find out that they are born-again Christians, followers of Jesus, and the first question I like to ask is, so how did that happen? How did you come to know Jesus? And it's, uh, it's fun to hear those types of stories. Everyone in this room has a story. If you know Jesus, you've got your own unique personal story of how you came to faith in Christ. No two stories are alike because no two people are alike. Everybody has a unique story to tell. Well, Acts chapter 16 summarizes the story of three very unique people. And I want you to take your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 16. Now, I know I've been telling you we're going to be studying the book of Philippians. And next week, we actually get into verse by verse in, uh, in the book of Philippians. But this is the story of the background of how that, that church got started. So Acts chapter 16. And it summarizes the story, the wonderful story, of three people who encounter the, uh, the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Their stories are examples of the rich diversity of, uh, of the church of Jesus Christ and the creative graciousness of a sovereign God who brings about those stories. What we're going to read today is really a celebration of the sovereign work of God in bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. So Acts chapter 16 we're going to read a little longer section here. So it starts in verse 11. So follow along with me. I'm, I'm reading here from the New American Standard Version. You may have a NIV or a King James Version. But it says in verse 11, So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying there, for some days. If you were here last week, remember I mentioned that Philippi had been given the status of a Roman colony, very prestigious. Here was a Greek city, but because of that famous battle in 42 BC, when Mark Antony and Octavian battled the assassins of Julius Caesar, Brutus and Cassius, and defeated them, it was right outside the city of Philippi. Well, a few years later, one of those successful and victorious generals, Octavian, became Caesar Augustus. He remembered the importance of the city of Philippi, and he bestowed upon it this favor, a colony of Rome. In other words, the people in Rome or in Philippi were just like the people in Rome. They were given the same status as Romans. Very, very prestigious to be born and raised in Philippi. Well, in verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside. And the we there, Luke is writing this, so Luke and Paul and the people that were with him, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And another, just a little interesting side note, uh, it, in the Jewish religious structure, it takes 10 men to start a synagogue. So apparently there weren't 10 men or 10 men willing to stand up and be counted. And so there was no synagogue, formal synagogue, that Paul would go to. 
So he heard about this prayer group meeting outside the city, and it was some women assembled there. Verse 14, one of them was named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, which was on the other side of the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor. And it says she was a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, and was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us and said, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us to do that. Now verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination or a spirit that could foretell the future met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. And following after Paul and us, she kept saying out loud and saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Man, what a, that's the kind of PR you don't need, right? I mean, she's accurate. These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way. I mean, imagine if someone would have come up here this morning after Scott prayed and just before I got up and says, Mark Carey's coming up here in just a moment. He is going to proclaim the way of salvation to you. Listen to him. And then go in some contorted, uh, you know, demon-possessed. I mean, that, I, I, I wouldn't want that. Um, and she continued doing this, verse 18, for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities, and when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, and because this was a Roman colony, Rome would set up in a Roman colony two authorities, two men, these were the chief magistrates, so Paul is brought before the chief magistrates, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, verse 21 which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe. Being Romans, we're Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they, were, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Verse 24, And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. That's where it gets interesting. Verse 25, But about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And Paul cried out with a loud voice and said, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household, and he brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. 
three completely different stories, completely different. Uh, three unique journeys in life. Yet all of them had the same thing in common. The sovereign work of God that brought them into a personal relationship with himself. So let's unpack this a little bit more. The first one, let's go back to Lydia. It says that she was a, a seller of purple. She's a, a merchant woman, and I would suggest she is a wealthy merchant woman. A seller of purple fabric. Now remember, this is a Roman colony. The regal um, robes, the regal curtains, the decorations would all want to be reminded of the city of Rome. And purple was that color, that regal color. This gal was sharp. She comes from Asia Minor, but she sets up her business in a Roman colony, and she deals in purple. Very expensive and very lucrative. You can do some background research on this. Someone came up to me after the first service and had done some research and told me that there was this purple dye comes from a particular snail. And it's very costly, 12,000 snails to make about 1.4 grams of dye. And uh, this gal was sharp, an astute businesswoman, and probably very, very wealthy. We find out in verse 15 that her home must be big enough to accommodate the church as it'll even in her home, meet in her home. Well, Paul meets with them. He begins to reason. She's a worshiper of God as well, it says. Some point in her journey, she came to an understanding of Jehovah God of the Old Testament. And it's the Sabbath day. She's meeting with a few others for the purpose of prayer. She's a wealthy woman. She's a religious, pious woman. And Paul begins to interact with her. He begins to, to, to connect the dots of the Old Testament story, pointing her, obviously, to Jesus Christ. And the text says there in verse 14 that she listened, and the, and the Lord opened her heart to respond, to embrace what Paul had been uh, reasoning with her about in the, in the Scriptures. God opened her heart. She believed in Jesus. She invites him uh, into her home to stay. She's baptized. She starts serving. Folks, this is textbook. This is textbook. Paul speaks. She listens. She's a ready heart. Paul speaks. She listens. God opens her heart to respond. She's she begins serving uh, the Lord. Uh, I mean, this is, this is one of those ideal textbook situations. You'll love to hear the stories of Lydia. It was the sovereign power of the Word of God. When she was brought face to face with the sovereign power of the Word of God, as Paul connected the dots from the Scriptures, her heart was opened and she responded, and you got your first convert in Europe for the Apostle Paul. Now you got the slave girl. You can't get any more opposite than the slave girl. She is a slave girl. There's nothing wealthy about her. She's caught in poverty. In fact, she's owned by more than one master. She's making her masters wealthy. And it's very clear that she is demon-possessed. This girl is caught in the grip of darkness. In the actual text, Greek text itself, it's defined this way. She is a slave, a python. 
kind of weird. A slave, a python. Now, in Greek mythology, out of the city of Delphi, it was believed in this Greek mythological story that uh, the spirit of Apollo, the god Apollo of Greek mythology, embodied a python snake in the city of Delphi. And there was a woman there, a chief priestess, who claimed to have the spirit of Apollo in her. And there was this basically this snake worship cult, python cult. Um, I don't know what you call it, a pythonian cult related and wrapped up with the snake, this python and this priestess. and this. It was just nothing more than demon possession, deep, deep darkness. And this girl, according to that mythology, that priestess was a foreteller of the future, of divination. And this girl, who is caught up in this particular demonic cult, is out there making money for her masters, telling people's fortune. And hey, the angel of light is very... Satan is, is, is no dummy. And this gal must be having some success because she's bringing some great wealth into the pockets of the masters doing this. Well, Paul casts out the demon, which clearly upsets the masters because all of a sudden in one statement, uh, their profits and their livelihood uh, are gone. Whereas Lydia, uh, she comes to faith because of the sovereign power of the word of God, this poor girl comes to faith because of the sovereign power of the name of God, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And that very moment, she's set free and she finds new life in Christ. Her life will never be the same. She encounters the power of a sovereign God and his name. The third person in this passage, is the jailer. So, as the story goes, Paul gets in trouble because he casts out this demon and the the riot and the people and all that stuff, and they throw him into prison after being beaten. They cast him in prison, and he meets the Roman jailer. Now, again, history tells us that because Philippi is a Roman colony, uh, you had a lot of ex-Roman soldiers, retired Roman soldiers, that settled in that area, settled in Philippi, and were given civic service uh, responsibilities. And so here's this man. He was an ex-Roman soldier who's given this position of authority as a jailer. It would have been a prestigious uh, position. Clearly, this was a guy who had proven himself um, to be faithful as a Roman soldier, maybe well-decorated, a faithful servant of Rome, and he's the chief jailer in this position. Um, Here's a guy who's spiritually indifferent. I mean, he's not a worshiper of God. He's not a praying guy. He's certainly not a demonic lunatic. He's just a Roman soldier, self-made man. He pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He doesn't need God. I mean, he's tough. He smells probably. He's got wounds and scars from battle. He's just, he's a tough guy. God is for kids and old women. He doesn't need God. But a crisis occurred in his life, according to the story. Into his self-made, little nicely composed life where he was in charge, an earthquake took place. 
The prisoner's shackles are broken, and all of a sudden this tough Roman jailer begins to realize his life is passing before his eyes. If those prisoners escape, his goose is cooked. He's an honorable soldier, and the honorable thing to do is to end your life in Rome. And he's about to fall on his sword when Paul says, stop, don't do, don't do that. Do yourself no harm. We're here. And as a story, as we read, he comes into that inner prison and he falls before the feet of Paul and Silas. He had run up against something in his life he had never run up against before. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, you believe on Jesus and you will be. Paul and Silas's attitude in the midst of suffering as they were singing and praising God, not fleeing when they had the chance to, what do you do with that? It runs against everything this tough old Roman soldier, jailer, knew of human nature. He came face to face with the power of the gospel in someone else's life. It changed him. What must I do to be like you, to be saved? Let me put it this way. Lydia comes to faith because of the sovereign power of God's word. The slave girl comes to faith because of the sovereign power of God's name. The Roman jailer comes to faith because of the sovereign power of God's presence observed in the life of Paul and Silas. God is sovereign in all these. He's working there in that little prayer group of those women that met there. In his sovereign plan, he had this merchant woman from Asia Minor somehow land in Philippi as a, because of her astute business mind. And there she is on the banks of that river when Paul comes and she comes to faith. It just so happens that Paul in the city of Philippi, as he heads his way to that prayer meeting, passes by day after day this demon-possessed, poor, darkened woman, girl, and encounters her and frees her from that demonic oppression, which sets off the riot and the angst of the masters and the magistrates and ends up putting Paul and Silas in prison. All the sovereign hand of God working behind the scene so that God could lead this salty old Roman jailer to a saving knowledge of himself. The sovereignty of God working out the unique and diverse stories of a person's life. Everybody has a story. And the common denominator, the thread that ties it all together is a God in heaven who's working his plan. Let me put it this way as well. Lydia, Lydia had a truth encounter with the gospel. The slave girl had a power encounter with the gospel. The jailer had a crisis encounter with the gospel. Everybody's story was different and unique. And these were the first converts in Europe. It was this band of unlikely people coming together that formulated the first church in Europe, set out by Paul in the city of Philippi. When Paul wrote his 
letter, which we're going to be start studying next week, when he wrote that letter and it sent off and it came to this church, these are the people who it was read to. The wealthy merchant woman, the former demoniac, slave girl, the tough, decorated Roman jailer. The gospel of Jesus Christ had penetrated all their hearts and changed them for all of eternity. Let me share with you four implications from this story. First of all, the gospel knows no boundaries. The gospel knows no boundaries. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. The good news about Jesus Christ is open to anyone. It goes across gender, it goes across racial boundaries, economic, social, economic boundaries. The cross of Jesus Christ is the great leveler of all. And when a person comes to faith, no matter what their station of life is, no matter what the color of their skin is, no matter who they are, they come to the foot of the cross. And there they find a sovereign God loving them to himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ knows no boundaries. And yet, for me, it's easy to think, well, well, Lydia, that's a kind of a no-brainer. She's the kind of person I'd want to go talk to. I mean, if I was given the opportunity to talk with Lydia, the demonic slave girl, the tough old Roman jailer, okay, Mark, go share the gospel. I'm a jailer, demoniac. Hi, Lydia, you know. That's a, there's a shoe in, right? Textbook. What about the unreachables? You pass that demoniac, oh, forget her. A Roman jailer, irreligious, doesn't have a pious bone in his body. Unreachable. Not to the power of a sovereign God. Who are the unreachables? Maybe in your sphere of, uh, of influence. I've, I've told this story before, I think. When I was a freshman at the University of Nebraska... I was a history major, and the first history class I took, it was a freshman class, introductory world history, okay? I don't know how many, 150 students. Taught by Dr. Nels Ferdy. Nels Ferdy. He was a Norwegian from Minnesota. And, uh, gee, what a, what a, he, the first day of class, he gets up in the lectern and he says, I'm here to teach you world history, but he said, really what I'm here to do because he said, you all probably come from a church background. You all come from some concept of, of, of a deity. My goal in this semester is to destroy that view that there's a God. And I was like, okay, well, this will be a fun class. And right away, you know, I labeled that guy, he was unreachable. That guy was not worth... Now we tried to, de- you know, debate during the class, and, and, and he, that's what he, he was waiting for us stupid little freshmen to, you know, kind of banter back and forth with him. And, you know, he'd just love to destroy him. And that was his goal. Unreachable. Anyway, I got through the university, went to, was going down to Dallas Seminary. 
And about a year or two later, I went back to Lincoln, and I was talking with some fellow students there at the University of Nebraska, and the topic of Dr. Nels Ferdy came up. So I wonder what happened to old Nels Ferdy. And uh, one of the students said, or one of my friends said, you'll never believe this, but the guy became a Christian. Born again, Christian. So I'm like, knock me over with a feather. You've got to be kidding me. How did that happen? Tell me his story. And just to make it short, his wife had gotten very ill in that one semester, and there were some students who said, they came to him and they said, Dr. Ferdy, you don't deserve this. You are a reprobate. I don't know why God would ever care for you and your wife, but we're going to pray for your wife. And we're going to pray that God is going to heal her so that you will know there's a God in heaven. And you realize that woman got healed and Ferdy could not figure out how this all, it put him on a course to explore. Anyway, he, he trusted Christ as his personal savior. For the remainder of his teaching days, he would be, he still taught that world history class, freshman class. But the remainder of his teaching days, he'd step, stand up in that lecture in that first day of class and he says, some of you come from churches and backgrounds and you believe in God. He said, my goal in this semester class is to teach you world history, also to teach you that there is a God in heaven. He's real. He sent you. And um, he, he, he set out to help people know that there really is a God. You know, incredible story. Now, he was an unreachable. But there are no unreachables in God's estimation. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of that powerful truth of the gospel. Let me share with you a second implication from chapter 16. And that is that our ultimate objective is not to change society, but to change lives through the gospel. You know, the masters of the slave girl were corrupt. They were evil exploiters of this poor person. And they were getting very rich off of it. And Paul didn't form a club, community club, to protest their evils. But what he did do is cast out that demon and brought this poor slave girl to faith in Christ. And that whole society, I think, in Philippi was changed because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Our ultimate objective as Christians, now listen, our ultimate objective as Christians in this country is not to save America. It's to save Americans. It's people who need to know Jesus. And when people come to know Jesus, it has a profound impact on society. Now let me go to, quickly to a third one. An implication is that a life well lived is one of the greatest evangelistic tools we have to influence someone else to Christ, to the gospel. A life well lived. One of the greatest tools we have. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You know what this world that is dead and dark and decayed, what this world need is the savory life of Christians who light up the world. What this darkened world needs is Christians who hinder the growth of darkness. 
who preserve and bring healing to human hearts, who flavor and lighten this world with godly living. There's nothing like a life well lived that accentuates the good message and the hope in Jesus Christ. My wife recently read, it's on my list, but she recently read a book about Nabil Qureshi, young Muslim man who grew up in a very devout, very tight-knit Muslim home. Parents were immigrants from Pakistan. Um, he wanted to be a doctor. He headed off to university, Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, where he met a young man. They became fast friends. His name was David. Now, David was a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Nabil was a passionate follower of Muhammad. And they formed a friendship. And David loved and lived and answered every question and objection that Nabil had. And over the course of many months and years, Nabil came to understand the truth of Jesus and trusted Jesus as his personal Savior. Today, uh, Nabil is a doctor down in Atlanta. He is also a speaker on, on Robbie Zacharias's ministry team. Um, he wrote a book, all this is in his book, called Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. How did that happen? There's nothing like a, a life well lived. It's the greatest evangelistic tool there is. David lived it out before Nabil made a profound difference. Isaac Watts wrote 300 years ago, So let our lips and lives express the holy gospel we profess. So let our works and virtues shine to prove the doctrines all divine. Thus shall we best proclaim abroad the honors of our Savior God when His salvation reigns within and grace subdues the power of sin. There is nothing like a life well lived. Let me share with you a fourth implication from this Acts 16 passage. And that is that the greatest motivation to advance the gospel in the world today is remembering the gospel's impact in our own life. The gospel's impact in our own life. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you got a story. A story of the gospel's impact. A story of the sovereign God who was working behind the scenes that led you to a point of faith in Jesus Christ. Most of you may know I grew up in a Christian home, a little rural town in Nebraska. I became a Christian when I was five years old. I've got a really, really boring story. There in that farmhouse in the kitchen, my mom led me to, to faith in Christ. I wanted to be a pastor when I was six years old, go to Dallas Seminary when I was in sixth grade. I mean, it's, it's just a boring life. But let me tell you something. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I'd be in hell, and deservedly so. See, God is impressed that I grew up in a Christian home. He's not impressed that I was a good little kid. <laughs> He's not impressed that I'm a preacher. 
The only thing God the Father is impressed with is His Son paid for my sins, and His Son's blood has covered my sins. And apart from Jesus, I'd be deserving hell this very moment. Now, some of you have a totally different story. And maybe it was much more creative and much more like the Philippian jailer. Maybe I'm a little bit more like Lydia. We all have a story to tell. But it is our story. And if we begin to really reflect and consider the wonderful power of the gospel in our life, it's the greatest motivation to get up out of our seats and go tell someone else that story about Jesus' love and grace. That's what he's calling us to. What's your story? Can you imagine that first church meeting in Philippi? Can you imagine in Lydia's house? There she is in her fine purple clothes, home decorated maybe to the nines, but just exuding a love for Jesus because someone came and connected the dots for her. Religious, yes. Pious, no doubt but a lost sinner. And there in that home is that former demoniac slave girl. She had no hope. No hope in life. She was there to do the bidding of of her masters and worse yet, the bidding of the demon within her. But she's set free. What a story she has to tell. Lydia, the slave girl sitting next to this tough old Roman jailer. (laughs) What a scene of that first church. And when Paul penned that letter that we're going to study to the Philippians, these are the people. They were the people in that church and their households. And maybe, I would assume by then, many more. Because I'll tell you, those three people are not going to keep it quiet. They're not going to keep it quiet. Tell me your story. The fellow Roman guards would sit around as they talked with this, for, this Roman jailer. Something's different about you, buddy. What is it? He said, well, let me tell you about the earthquake one night. Let me tell you about an encounter, a crisis encounter with the living God. To the slave girl, weren't you the girl that was on the street? You look awfully familiar. There's something familiar. But something different. Oh, let me tell you about Jesus. I I had an empower encounter with the name of Jesus. Lydia, this astute businesswoman, Lydia, there's something different. You always are very religious, but there's something different in your eyes. There's a love. What, what, what is it? Let me tell you about a truth encounter I had outside the city one day when a guy came and connected the dots. Let me tell you my story. Do you have a story, folks? 
If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, you got a story. Are you telling that story? Have you told that story recently to anyone? There's a world of people out here who need to know your story because your story is ultimately going to point to Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I don't have a story, at least a story about how I came to know Jesus. Today could be that day your story begins. Because there's really good news that you can put your faith in and believe, and you can go to eternity believing it. That God so loved you, He gave His only begotten Son to die on a cross for you and to pay for your sins. And don't let a crying baby right now take your distraction away. No, folks, I'm dead serious. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He died on a cross, paid for your sins, and rose again. And there's nothing that can detract you from this wonderful truth. There's a God in heaven who loves you. What do I have to do, you say? You put your faith in Jesus. You transfer your trust off of yourself, your goodness, your religiosity. You put it on Jesus and him alone. Trust him. And the moment you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that he died for your sins and rose again, in that instant your story begins. And you can leave here today, go grab someone, and tell them. Would you bow your head, please, in prayer? Our Father, how we need to um, be reminded Though each one of us is different and we come from different life experiences, if we know you as our personal Savior, if we know you as our personal Savior, um, there's one thing in common. In your grace and love, you pursued us, you orchestrated events as a sovereign God. You brought us to a point where you opened our heart to respond. And you brought us to faith. Thank you. My prayer, Father, is that we will be excited, as I'm sure Lydia and that slave girl and that Philippian jailer were, to be participants in the gospel, to go and proclaim this good news to others. Give us those opportunities, Father, those open doors, and may we with boldness share our story. I pray this in Christ's name.